Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkopf, and I am joined as every Thursday by my co-host on uh, this podcast, Ryan Goodman of NYU. How are you today, Ryan? Fairly well, David. Thanks. Fairly well. Uh, for those of you <laughs> new to us, fairly well is as high. That's as, that's taken Ryan right up to 10 uh, <laughs> in enthusiasm. Um, and we are joined also by our friend Natasha Bertrand of uh, Politico. Hi, Natasha. How are you? Doing well. Thanks for having me. And um, another friend, Richard Stengel, former Undersecretary of State, uh, commentator for MSNBC and NBC, a former managing editor of Time Magazine. Hi, Richard. Great to be with you guys. Yeah, very glad to have you. And by the way, I have to say, in my own personal Deep State Radio room writer, you're always, you always win. <laughs> the room that you've got is the best uh, Zoom room that I, that I know of. Uh, and a new guest to the show, Graham Brookie, who runs a digital lab at the Atlantic Council, also worked in the Obama White House on a variety of issues uh, at the NSC. Thanks for joining us, Graham. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Uh, well, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to have you here. Before Ryan kicks off with a round of questions, I just want to frame it by saying, um, and Natasha knows this well because she's been uh, helping us. Uh, while we talk about a wide range of issues on our podcast week to week, um, uh, we're among that kind of unique uh, group of people that can't get over the Russia issue. And, you know, the country seems to have gotten over the Russia issue. The media seems to have gotten over the Russia issue. Uh, the Trump administration wants everybody to be over the Russia issue. And yet every single day, there is reason not to be. and that quite apart from the fact that um, uh, Russia interfered in the 2016 election and they're interfering in the 2020 election. But we've got shenanigans at the Department of Homeland Security. We've got an administration unwilling to acknowledge the poisoning of Russia's leading democracy uh, activists. We've got a an attorney general who says, oh, it's really China. Uh, you know, it's not really Russia. Um, and uh, and it's all very, very peculiar, and I don't think we should let it drop, and we're not going to. So, Ryan, why don't you kick off with a round of questions for everybody? Um, and everybody, if we do two to three minutes per question, we'll get a few rounds of this in. Ryan. Sure. Thanks, David. Um, so I guess maybe one place to start is some of the recent reporting, and Natasha's been at the forefront of this uh, in terms of what the intelligence community assesses to be the greatest risks of foreign interference in the presidential election. So, you know, just last night, uh, Wolf Blitzer had a pretty significant interview with the attorney general. And 
I guess I'm just going to repeat exactly what happened in that interview and then turn it over to you, Natasha, to tell us about what your reporting uh, says in this space. So Blitzer says to the Attorney General, uh, quote, the intelligence community says Russia, China, and Iran are seeking to interfere in the U.S. presidential election for various reasons, mostly because they want to sow dissent in our country, exacerbate racial tensions, etc., like that. Of these three countries that the intelligence community has pointed to, Russia, China, and Iran, which is the most assertive and most aggressive in this area? And then Bill Barr says, I believe it's China. And Blitzer says, which one? Um, and Barr says, China. And Blitzer says, China? More than Russia right now? Barr says, yes. And Blitzer says, why do you say that? And Barr says, because I've seen the intelligence. So, Natasha, has he seen the intelligence? Um, what's your, you, you've been at the absolute forefront of the reporting on this. So if you can comment on that, I think it'd be terrific to hear from you. By the way, I think there should be a brief round of applause for Ryan's dramatic interpretation. <laughs> It was very evocative. It really made us feel like we were in the room. I agree. Anyway, sorry, Natasha. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, I'm just seeing they're playing it again on CNN right now. I mean, it's um, interesting how Barr parsed his words there. He said that, he said, I believe, he said, I believe China is the greatest threat to the election. He said, I have concluded based on the intelligence that I have read that China is the biggest threat. But it doesn't seem like he can say truthfully that the broader intelligence community has concluded that because according to people that I've spoken to who have actually seen the underlying material, there is just no way that you can read that material and say China poses the more acute threat here to this election. Every person I've spoken to that's read it has been unanimous on this issue especially with regard to John Ratcliffe, the DNI, who said recently that China is waging this massive influence operation ahead of the election that dwarfs anything that any other country is doing. And, you know, just being, you know, not even having sources in the intel community, not even talking to people who have been briefed on this stuff. I mean, you can kind of look at that and say, okay, where? I mean, we haven't gotten any indication really anywhere that the Chinese are doing this in, you know, in an attempt to sway the election one way or another. Maybe they are continuing certain influence operations in certain spaces to, to pursue their own agenda, which they've been doing for a very long time. But in terms of sowing disinformation and chaos and trying to undermine faith in the democratic process and trying to steer things towards Trump yet again, I mean, we see that pretty much on a daily basis. I mean, just this week, Facebook removed a network of Russian pages from the Internet Research Agency that were again trying to undermine Joe Biden. Today, the DHS came out with a new intel memo saying that Russia is trying to sow disinformation about mail-in voting. Um, and we are hearing nothing about China, but the people that are saying that they have all of this intel about what China's doing just refuse to elaborate on it. They refuse to say anything about it, saying that it's classified. Um, so... So obviously that smells, and I think that if there were such an operation going on, then frankly, the American public deserves to know, you know, at least some of the top line details about it before they go to the polls in November, because if it is this huge sweeping operation that 
we're simply not aware of, and they are, then ultimately, you know, these questions are going to start being asked about why they're hiding that. Um, but according to, again, everyone that I've spoken to, that's just not what's happening here. Russia is the much more acute threat this time around, just like it was in 2016. And uh, also just to underscore it in part, uh, Tom Malinowski today tweeted something that is further confirmation of Natasha's reporting. He said, um, in response to the Barr interview, he said, quote, I've seen the intelligence too and have been briefed by the intel community's top China and Russia experts. Barr is lying here, um, referring to the exact same exchange. So um, I guess, Richard, one thought I had to turn it over to you is in some ways, the segue is uh, knowing fact from fiction. And, you know, my sense, my sense of Barr is he knows exactly what he's doing. And actually, you know, in the way that Natasha just described it, he knows exactly down to the level of how precisely he's choosing his words to avoid saying the IC, the intelligence community, thinks this to I believe this, or I've read the intelligence and I've concluded. So he knows exactly how he's manipulating it. And I guess I want to think about with you, uh, how the president manipulates or knows the difference between fact and fiction. And uh, you, were, you know, one of the times you were in Nicole Wallace's show recently on uh, Deadline White House, you referred to the president as, quote unquote, the conspiracy theorist in chief, um, playing on the idea in part that, you know, President Trump is engaged oftentimes in cynical manipulation of facts but uh, something that troubled me this week that I'd love to hear you talk about more is Miles Taylor, um, the former DHS chief of staff under Trump on CNN, I think it was, said that in cabinet meetings with Trump and other meetings, the principals were flabbergasted that time and again, the president of the United States believed the conspiracy. It wasn't this cynical manipulation behind the scenes that he knew the difference and then he was going to play the American public. He consumed it. Uh, it, it, it was his actual belief system, <laughs> some of these conspiracies time and again. Um, and I just wondered, uh, also because you've served in senior positions in the government, which is more dangerous in a certain sense as we go into the election? Is it that he's the cynical manipulator, uh, conspiracy theorist in chief, or that he actually buys it? Um, and he's he's bought into the conspiracy, and that's what he is. Because I, I, I actually, I was going to tweet out Miles Taylor and say, "Look, this is so worrisome." I'm actually not sure which <laughs> which is it. Um, so, from your perspective, you know, what are the threats that come from him being the conspiracy theorist in chief? Gee, Ryan, you're asking me to be a psychiatrist and a philosopher. <laughs> question. Um, uh, and before I try to wrestle with that, I just want to give a shout out to both Natasha and Graham. I mean, Natasha's doing spectacular work uh, that is, uh, you know, hopefully will preserve uh, the Republic. She's on the front lines. And the, and the DFR lab at, at the Atlantic Council, which uh, Graham runs, has is, is, is been 24-7 exposing disinformation all around the world and, and in the U.S. I mean, they're, they're experts. I'm like, I'm a dilettante. Um, so. Uh, but to, to try to wrestle with your question, I mean, it is, a, it is in fact, a psychiatric question. I mean, I, uh, from, uh, you know, from his uh, art, art of the Deal, which he didn't write, I guess what's that, in that first page, he says, I believe in kind of truthful exaggeration or whatever. I mean, I actually think he cannot make a distinction between fact and fiction, that he does 
most of the time believe things that are in his interest to believe. I mean, he's a, he's a, you know, he's a, he's a walking endorsement of confirmation bias that he just believes the things that he already believes. And, and if it's in his interest, just the way he evaluates people, is it a, is it plus to Donald Trump or minus to Donald Trump? And then he makes a judgment. So, um, I mean, I think, um, I don't know which is more dangerous to be, to be sincerely, uh, deceptive and disturbed or to be cynically so. I mean, I think he's both. Um, and I think it goes to a core uh, uh, problem with that, that we have is that, is that it's, it is difficult more and more for people to distinguish between fact and fiction, particularly when you have a president of the United States that can. And, and it's not like a fact comes underlined in yellow. Uh, I wish it did. Um, and people are, are manipulated uh, not only by Trump, by, but by all kinds of bad actors. And I mean, you know, to go back to philosophy, I mean, you know, go to Descartes, I mean, he, people are trying to understand, you know, what do we know for sure? Um, it, it's harder and harder to say because there is so much disinformation and misinformation and it comes from the top. But, but the, the danger is that, I mean, he's undermining every institution that we have uh, in, in our country uh, where I, I worked you know, in the State Department extensively with the intelligence community. And, and those folks are just trying to do their job. And, and they tend to almost have no, they, you would never, ever know whether an intelligence officer is a Democrat or a Republican. Um, when they say something that has a high degree of certainty, like they did about the, uh, the Russian disinformation lately, I mean, that's like saying they have a high degree of certainty that two plus three equals five. That means it's a fact. So, um, the fact that the, the attorney general, in a very sinister way, uh, knowingly, he's not, he's not sincere in his deception. He's cynical in his deception. Uh, and to go back to what Natasha said, I mean, you know, when it comes to disinformation, Russia is a bear and China is a flea. And, um, and everybody who knows anything about it knows that that's the truth, whether it is in the, in the information report or, or what we all see. I mean, I mean, Graham is probably better at speaking to that than I do because people are looking at that, at that stuff and analyzing it all day long. You don't have to be at DHS or CIA or NSA to know that those things are true. In fact, I bet the stuff that DFR Lab is better than the stuff that some of those agencies have. So that's my two cents about that. I might interject here, uh, Ryan, in response to your question that Trump seems to live at the intersection of the thinking of Descartes and Bertrand Russell, uh, and in, at a place where I lie, therefore I am. Ah, that's, um, <laughs> he wouldn't uh, hear those two names at all. Uh, no, he would not have any idea what we were talking about. Go on, go on, Ryan. I'm sorry to have interrupted. Um, so, Graham, I wanted to touch on one of the news events of the day that Natasha already mentioned, and then thread it through one of the insights that I've you know learned from you and your writing and analysis. So the, the news of the day is this new DHS bulletin that um, the headline is Russia likely to continue seeking to undermine faith in U.S. electoral process. And then the first heading is we assess that Russia is likely to continue amplifying criticisms of vote by mail and shifting voting processes amidst the COVID-19 pandemic to undermine public trust in the electoral process. And then it's a two-pager, which 
in many respects, uh, Jonathan Carl, I think might have been the first one to report it out, said you can, so much of this is actually a direct echo of what the president has been saying, undermining the, the, the idea that we're going to have a, a, a fair election, undermining the idea of mail-in ballots, having integrity. And then what I thought would be helpful to do is to speak to the idea that you've raised in the past, which is the bipartisan Senate Intelligence Committee's report, the third report, where they have uh, recommendations that haven't gotten enough attention and how those recommendations frame your thinking about this kind of confluence of events, that here we have DHS giving an intelligence bulletin that is actually saying Russia is doing the very same thing that the president and AG Barr um, are doing in terms of undermining public trust in the electoral process. If you could talk about those in combination, it would be terrific to hear. Well, one of the things about the news of the day that, that you didn't mention in that John Carl report is that that report was delayed in coming out. And so there were there was a delay in that uh, transparent assessment that says, you know, Russia's at it again. Here's how we know. Here's a little bit of kind of context and evidence that goes along with that. Uh, but it was reported that that was kind of delayed in its uh, rollout because of uh, reportedly bad writing. Uh, the senior officials that I have ever worked with uh, never held up our really, really, really critical intelligence because uh, they didn't like the passive voice that was used, right? Uh, and so I think that that's particularly interesting and lines up with some of the other moves that you've seen this administration making in limiting the amount of uh, transparency and accountability with regard to the threat of election security or foreign interference in elections, regardless of actor. Uh, they seem very, very eager, as you already noted, to, uh, to talk about interference efforts by China, uh, but not as uh, eager to talk about influence efforts from anybody else. Which goes to the, the other point, the bipartisan uh, Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, which, by the way, Natasha's reporting on SISI and all of these sets of issues over the last three years has been instrumental and essential reading for anybody who's studying this space. Uh, but SISI has jurisdiction over this issue. And after 2016, they announced that they were going to look at everything that went wrong and what we knew about foreign influence. And they've produced now a five volume report on exactly what went wrong with foreign interference in, in previous elections, especially from Russia. And based on this five volumes of report and years long effort, they created a set of recommendations that basically said, okay, well, here's how you deal with this threat going forward. Here's steps that both uh, mostly government, somewhat media and a lot of social media can take in order to build more resilience against this threat and not be vulnerable to it anymore. And so while you were asking this question, I pulled some of them up because uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of these recommendations. Uh, and it's basically a playbook for how not to screw this threat up, uh, unfortunately. So the good news is that we have a playbook. The bad news is that every single news cycle, we screw it up somehow. Uh, collectively. And so one of the uh, recommendations from volume three, which I think is one of the choicest uh, volumes of this whole set, is the executive branch should be prepared to face an attack in a highly politicized environment, either from Russia or elsewhere. Uh, and frankly, it doesn't seem like they've really taken that to heart. Now, this is a bipartisan set of recommendations, and it is, is a national security vulnerability that 
shouldn't be partisan at all. And yet, one of our main vulnerabilities with regard to disinformation and foreign influence efforts that utilize disinformation is, a, is our own partisanship. It's weaponized against us and, and drives at our basest political incentives. And this administration hasn't really taken to heart that that is what is vulnerable to this. And in fact, has played into it time and again. Interesting. I, you know, one of the challenges that we've got in covering these kind of issues is that every day and sometimes a couple times a day, there's a new outrage that overtakes the, the last outrage. You know, and when Washington, we've established in this administration that a, that a Scaramucci is 11 days because that's how long he lasted in office. But an outrage is about 12 hours because there's always one after it. And, and, and one of the outrages that lingers with, with me, Natasha, is the, the, the letter that was sent by uh, DNI Ratcliffe to the House saying, I'm not coming. Uh, we're not, we're not given these, uh, the, these briefings. Um, uh, and of course we had, you know, outrage from the house. Um, we also have had, by the way, in the course of the past week, a court ruling that says that, uh, the, the house is limited in how it can enforce subpoenas without a law that lets them support the subpoenas. And so the way I look at it, you know, we're going from now through the election at the period of greatest criticality, and we're going to have even less transparency than the, the, the bare minimum. Do you think there's anything possible that's going to reverse that? And do you think that the director of the FBI, the director of the CIA, the director of the NSA, the director of the DIA, are going to follow suit with this, or if they were approached, they would do the right thing and um, actually report to the Congress what the Congress deserves to hear? Well, <clears throat> with regard to the FBI director, we got an answer to that recently. Um, we obtained a letter that the FBI director wrote to uh, 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 senior Democrats saying, basically, you know, the ODNI has this covered. They've been doing these in-person briefings. So we don't feel that the FBI director, I'm paraphrasing, needs to brief Congress right now on these election security issues, kind of dodging the bullet entirely on actually sitting before, before these top Democrats and, and Republicans and laying out the election threats um, that the FBI has been tracking. So after that letter was sent, which was August 23rd, I believe, um, that is when Ratcliffe suddenly said that he was going to put an end to these in-person in briefings um, moving forward. And that, of course, had been what the FBI director was relying on to, to kind of dodge his own uh, responsibilities to testify. So I don't see this turning around necessarily before the election because John Ratcliffe was put there for a very specific reason, right? I mean, this is someone who had no experience in the intel community. He had about a year and a half on the House Intelligence Committee. And he was selected because he was going to serve kind of as a buffer between the intel community and the president, but in the worst possible way. So as someone who will shield the president from things that he doesn't want to hear and who will try to then 
tell the American public uh, his interpretation of, of the facts, which to date, he has not had a great track record with that, um, especially on this China issue. So short of a subpoena, which according to the Democrats, they are weighing um, whether or not to issue one to Ratcliffe to explain what was really behind this change in, in the briefing structure, because it was very abrupt. They had already scheduled more briefings for, for members of Congress about the election security threat. And all of a sudden, in the matter of two or three days, they said, actually, you know, leaks have made it impossible for us to continue this. Um, then, you know, I don't think that there's going to be any real consequences here. I mean, the DNI will continue to send finished intelligence products to the committees. And according to Marco Rubio, who's the acting chairman of the Senate Intel Committee, he apparently will still keep getting in-person briefings because apparently the director of national intelligence wants to keep... Um, so that has been met with really no consequence either. Um, ODNI has not responded to Marco Rubio's claims about that, has not clarified why they're treating one committee one way, another committee another. Um, but... The, the bigger picture here is that the, the kind of raw politicization of this process and of the intelligence, I think, could only worsen leading up to the election. You know, um, some people will see this when they see this YouTube version of this or some of our quotes, but everybody knows Natasha's a courageous reporter, but I've just, my, my appreciation for her courage has gone up as we've discovered that she has a black dog and a white couch. And the, 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 you know, that, that really takes a lot of boldness and con I congratulate you. Looks like he's very well behaved. Um, Richard, you know, um, just as the DNI has um, been, in, been neutered as an office, uh, and that was the intention of, of, of having Grinnell in there first and then Ratcliffe. Uh, we've also seen the State Department neutered as an effective tool. And one of the most egregious examples of this is the case of Novotny and uh, the, 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 the reality that here is a guy who is the leading democracy advocate in Russia, who was apparently poisoned, apparently poisoned with a nerve toxin that is a signature uh, uh, attack method of Russian intelligence services. The countries of, of Europe uh, have, uh, you know, determined to speak out against this, led by Angela Merkel. And absent a few anodyne statements, um, uh, not out of the mouths of the president or the secretary of state, uh, our State Department has remained fairly silent on this. Um, I, I was wondering, first of all, your thoughts on it. And secondly, looking into this idea, it, it, apparently Trump feels that he is so associated with Russia that saying anything negative about Russia, no matter what they do, um, is, is almost self-indicting. And uh, as, as, as we look at the world situation right now, particularly worried about what that might mean in Belarus, as the Russians are sitting there being called in, being at the border, and knowing that the president of the United States is inclined to give them a free pass on, on anything. So what are, what are your thoughts on that? Yes, I mean, and not just Belarus. I mean, there's the Russian aggression uh, 
in Syria that where uh, they intimidated American troops and Trump didn't say anything. Um, Mr. Navalny, like any opposition politician in Russia, is a heroic campaigner for democracy. I think Americans don't understand the risks and bravery necessary to go up against Putin in Russia. And my hat is always off to these people, and they risk their lives, as, as we've seen. Um, uh, I believe, belatedly, the Secretary of State's office did express, I don't know, the usual you know, reservations or concerns about the poisoning of Navalny. The uh, president, of course, has not. I mean, and, you know, I, I think I also, you know, uh, uh, agree with the premise of your show that I'm obsessed with Russia, too. Um, and one of the things I think is that, um, uh, for the sake of argument, that there is a clear uh, compromise on Trump, or there's a clear uh, leash that he's on uh, from Putin. You know, I would say, if I were Putin, I'd say, hey, Don, every once in a while, you have to criticize me. That will make you look like you're not beholden to me. Uh, but Trump being this kind of, not even an adolescent, an eight or nine-year-old, like, he thinks he can't say a single negative thing against Putin or the whole house of cards is going to come tumbling down. I mean, it's like he's in the principal's office when it comes to, to Putin. So um, I, I, I find it just odd, uh, among other things. And I think, speaking of the State Department, I mean, you know, one of the things that made me proud when I was in the State Department, and, and I would be in meetings with the Secretary of State, with the President of the United States sometimes, and you know what? In those private meetings with world leaders, they said the very things that they said when they came out, that they said inside. And they talked about human rights, and they, they talked to Xi Jinping about saying, about the Uyghurs and about, about imprisoning people uh, in your country. I saw that everywhere. And one of the tragedies of the Trump administration uh, is that our word, uh, our integrity is, you know, sunk. And people around the world say to us what they publicly now, what they used to say privately is, well, you guys are a bunch of hypocrites. Well, now we are a bunch of hypocrites because we don't do the things that we once said we did and we cared about. And, uh, you know, in the eye of the storm and maybe at the bottom all, of all of this is this strange relationship between uh, Trump and, uh, and Russia. And by the way, to mention, to go back to what, what Graham was saying about the, uh, and Natasha knows this well, the Senate Intelligence Committee reports, they actually, unlike uh, Robert Mueller, probe in this most recent volume, the history, the 30-year history of Trump's relationship with Russia and the sort of white whale of building a Trump Moscow. I mean, that actually connects the dots in a way that Mueller never did. And I, you know, recommend every American looking at that. Yeah, here, here. Uh, before we get on here to, to Grim, um, I want to give you one more chance to, to vent briefly. Because <laughs> the other thing the State Department did this week was they not sanctioning Russia. They chose to sanction two officials of the International Criminal Court. Um, which is one of, and, and it happened to be of the five sort of uh, top officials there, they were the two officials of color. Um, and, it, and it's one of the most outrageous things. I mean, you know, the United States built the international system post-war to create a system of law so that we could resolve conflicts uh, absent the use of force. And here we are now 
finding yet another way to attack or dismantle it. And I just, I don't know whether your spleen is twitching a little bit about that, but I, uh, well, David, I mean, it's just, it's all of a piece. Um, you know, we have undermined, we are the outlaw nation now to so many, uh, places around the world. And, um, I just think it's unfortunate that this order that we help build that has kept the peace for 75 years is, is kind of unraveling, uh, right in front of us, according to Putin's great dream. I mean, uh, um, you know, I interviewed him in 2007. It was in that interview that he said the greatest tragedy of the 20th century was the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Let's let that sink in for a second. Um, what he's done since then is he's tried to unravel all of those forces and institutions that unraveled the Soviet Union, and he's succeeding. To a remarkable degree. So I'm going to go with a question to you, Graham, and then, Ryan, I'm going to leave to you the responsibility of a sort of lightning round of a minute or two questions for everybody after that. So you may, you may want to start thinking about that, but you know, there is one group that is uh, in some ways as suspect and odious as these members of the Trump administration in leaving us vulnerable to foreign attacks on our democratic processes. And that's the leadership at big tech, because a lot of the ways in for these attacks are through platforms like uh, Facebook or Twitter or other places where trolls may lurk. Um, uh, and of course, you know, there's a there's a large infrastructure component to this as well. Um, this week, we actually saw Facebook take a small step in terms of taking certain um, uh, source of Russian disinformation uh, off their site. And they also made an announcement that they would not be taking uh, political advertisement, I, th I think, during the last week of the campaign. Have they gotten the message? Is Mark Zuckerberg a new champion of democracy and protecting the United States? Um, or is this um, PR? Well, I think anybody trying to kind of channel what is in Mark Zuckerberg's head um, is is probably betting at a losing game. And if if you are able to channel what's in Mark Zuckerberg's head, then then you would certainly be more wealthy than I am today. Uh, I think the main point on this set of issues is that companies like Facebook and and Twitter, in particular, Google to an extent, uh, the social media platforms have spent the last few years building a lot of muscle memory to kind of deal with what Facebook calls coordinated and authentic behavior. Uh, they've kind of tested approaches approaches and elections around the world. They're looking at specific groups, et cetera. And the, the teams that look at those, we, I mean, we work with them very, very closely. We talk to them on a pretty consistent basis, including about the uh, Russia set that was taken down yesterday uh, in a content, what they would call a content moderation uh, stance, right? those teams are, are doing actually pretty good work uh, and, and they have a pretty robust approach to this set of issues. Uh, the steps that they announced today, uh, ads, uh, removing ads for the week before the election or disallowing ads before the, the election, uh, those are some of that's pretty important. I, I think the thing that stuck out to me in this week's announcement or this morning's announcement from Zuckerberg in particular is that uh, the commitment to 
promote only official election results. So they're partnering with Reuters uh, and they are going to only promote election results as Reuters reports them. Now, they are going to commit to downgrading or removing any content that misleads about the election. And I think that that's really, really important in the hours and days and weeks and after election night. Uh, But keep in mind, I mean, disinformation is designed literally to kind of seep through the cracks of these policies. Uh, And bad actors, whether foreign or domestic, game those policies like crazy. And so I would expect them to be kind of a step in the right direction, but it's not a solution in and of itself. There are still vulnerabilities across social media. And I mean, importantly too, in traditional media, in the way that we cover this set of issues, uh, which we still kind of haven't quite accounted for. Yeah, by the way, isn't Reuters partner with a Russian source of disinformation? I, I mean, I, I, aren't they? I, I thought Russia was, uh, Reuters was partnered with uh, Sputnik. Yeah, On specific was, parts of content. I mean, they, I think they have advertising revenue that is locked up in, in certain places in the world. But that said, I think there's probably firewalls as well. Okay. Ryan, over to you for the last round. Sure. So I figured we can maybe just do Richard, Natasha, and then Graham. Um, I guess one way I could think of framing like a last round of very quick thoughts is that uh, Friday is uh, supposedly 60 days uh, before the election. Uh, So what do you think of as the greatest threats in the information ecosystem in the next 60 days in terms of what the, you know, reader listeners uh, to the show should be thinking about? Um, So one thing of 60 days is obviously it triggers people to think about the justice department and AG Barr rolling out the Durham report. Um, that could be one piece of this. Um, but there are other pieces of it, like the ways in which other senior officials seem to be, for lack of a better term, aiding and abetting um, uh, foreign influence by restricting in-person briefings of Congress by DHS uh, deep-sixing an intelligence briefing to federal law enforcement agents and other agents around the country with respect to Russian disinformation on the president's health. Um, what do you think are the like, things that people should be looking out for, I suppose, in the next 60 days with respect to the dimension that we're talking about, disinformation and the information ecosystem that we are living with? So Richard, Richard first. first. Yeah. Yes, my head was swimming with your question, uh, Ryan. I mean, I, to me, this is maybe slightly off topic, the thing that worries me the most is disinformation, misinformation, propaganda around voting itself, mail-in ballots in particular. Uh, and by the way, the, you know, the disinformationist in chief has been at, hard at work at this now for months. But uh, what we'll see is, that, is the Russians and other bad actors, domestic actors, which dwarf the amount of international uh, disinformation playing into and trying to sow doubts among the American electorate about the integrity of the election, particularly mail-in ballots. I want to mention a couple of facts uh, of the, about the U.S. Postal Service. So they estimate at the most that the, the largest number of anticipated mail-in ballots is 80 million. The U.S. Postal Service delivers 200 million pieces of first-class mail every day. At Christmas time, they deliver 2.5 billion pieces of mail in the last five days before Christmas. 
there is absolutely the ability of the U.S. Postal Service to ha- handle mail-in ballots. And, uh, and, you know, the states and the counties have to figure out the best way to count them. I, uh, I, I like the fact that Facebook said they're going to just align with uh, uh, reporting the results from legitimate state uh, and county institutions. I think every news organization should do that and other platforms should do that. So that's the thing that um, keeps me awake at night. By the way, can you imagine being the guy at the Internet Research Agency who was assigned with disinformation around Trump's <laughs> health and mental state, you know, and, and you have to create disinformation to make people think he's he's thin and and on the ball, you know? <laughs> I mean, that's that's almost impossible. Tech. Did you did you wanted to go to Graham next there, uh, uh, Brian? Who would you want to go to next? I'd mention Natasha a second. Oh, Natasha. Away. Well, that's one of our two choices here. So, Natasha. Um, yeah. So I, I still think that one of the biggest threats to the faith that people have in the election in democracy does come from the president himself. I mean, just what yesterday he was telling people to try voting twice um, just to test the system. And the attorney general didn't dispute that. He went on CNN and he said, well, I don't know the laws in each state. Um, These are the kinds of things that are continuing to erode the sense within voters that perhaps this won't be legitimate, even without help from the Russians who are again, trying to echo that information. Um, But but, you know, something that that former um, officials who worked on the 2016 case with Russia's interference have told me repeatedly is that what they saw is that Russia actually pulled its punches in 2016 and that there were a lot more techniques um, that they could have used and mechanisms that they could have employed to mess with the election that they actually didn't. And that also goes for the information that they stole, that people in the FBI and the intel community saw were, were taken um, in real time. And they kind of scratched their heads about why that wasn't used. But they have said that, well, when your guy wins, you know, you don't really want to push the envelope any further. So what they're worried about now is that the things that they learned in 2016 that perhaps the IC doesn't know about yet um, have grown more sophisticated and could potentially be used this time around. And the Intel community tells reporters and background calls that they haven't seen the level of activity that they saw in 2016 with regard to targeting, say, of election infrastructure. But they're also worried that they're missing something. Um, and that's obviously not very reassuring. So I think there's there are a number of things that could happen at the last minute, um, which is also what they pointed to, is that it's more likely that this could be some kind of dramatic 11th hour operation. Very disturbing. So, Graham. So, first, I'll join Rick for a post office appreciation hour uh, any any day. It's a huge issue in this election. What we're looking out for is, is a lot of process disinformation or what we would define as uh, disinformation about the results of the election as well as when, where, and how to vote. Uh, disinformation about the post office being central to that type of process disinformation. Uh, frankly, that's what DHS is looking at as well when they talk about elections as critical infrastructure. Uh, to Ryan's question, he, the way it was phrased was, what are you looking out for? And, and I think one of the things that I'm uh, most concerned about is what people aren't looking into. Uh, disinformation is a kitchen table topic in the United States. If you talk about disinformation, I'm in Kentucky right now on the way to Colorado, 
And if I stopped at every single gas station along the way and asked if they knew what this information was, the answer would probably be yes. And that's a level of awareness that's a good thing. Now, the amount of disinformation that is out there, uh, both from foreign actors, from domestic actors, is at a scale and scope that, frankly, we haven't seen before. And so the amount of kind of things that there are to look at ahead of elections that include disinformation are enormous. And the amount of attention and focus and, and critical kind of approaches to that are lacking across the board. And so what I'm looking out for is the amount of stuff that we need to be looking out for and then diving deep into that. And I think what we can plate a number of these issues, whether it's foreign interference in elections and this meme of kind of Russian bots, like blaming anything, a Twitter account that you don't happen to agree with is now kind of a Russian bot from time to time, uh, to disinformation or misinformation, misinformation being false information spread kind of without intent. We all have a family member that does that on a pretty consistent basis, I feel like. Or disinformation, the spread of false information with intent, those bad actors who are really, really trying to mislead you. And so kind of unpacking that broader set of issues in this mess of an information environment is an enormous challenge. And we all have a role to play, uh, which I think is, is critical in this last 60 days. And frankly, 60 days plus, because we know that there's going to be, again, an information vacuum around election day. And it's not going to end on November, in the first week of November. So we all have to be alert and, and keep at it. Well, and it's also a little bit like COVID crisis. It's not going to end until we end it. Uh, it's not going to end until we put in place the uh, defense mechanisms that we, that we need to have and that this Senate hasn't funded and that this White House has not sought to pursue and that it will continue over to affect the next administration, however that is. Uh, I would conclude by saying that, you know, in times like these, uh, when the administration has deliberately um, av avoided fulfilling its oath of office and its responsibility to protect the United States from foreign interference in the election, uh, we still have some important lines of defense. And they are uh, represented you know, within the administration by some people who are doing their job. But they're also represented in the private sector, um, the not-for-profit sector, uh, by people like all of you guys. And I, I, I really do want uh, to commend everybody's work here and to say the way that we are going to avoid uh, reliving some of the mistakes of 2016 is by following um, uh, closely the work of people like Natasha, who deserves all the credit that she has gotten here from from Richard and, and, and from Gray and from Ryan. Go to Ryan's uh, website, Just Security. Uh, you'll find work by all these folks uh, there, and they have been great on this. Go to the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensic Research Lab, uh, which Graham runs, which is doing fantastic work on this. Uh, and follow the commentary of Richard on MSNBC, because you need people who will call it out, who don't pull their punches, uh, and who recognize the gravity of the threat that we face. Uh, and I think, Richard, you have been particularly um, uh, strong and an important voice in all of that. So I thank all of you, not just for joining us for this podcast and not just keeping these issues um, front and center, but for providing you know, our listeners and everybody with the tools they need 
um, to make sense of this and to 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 counteract the effects of the disinformation warriors who are out to undermine this election. So um, thank you to Natasha. Thank you to Richard. Thank you to Graham. Thank you, of course, to Ryan. Thanks to everybody for listening. Uh, if you want to hear what we've got coming up in the next uh, few weeks, the next 60 days to the election, um, it, it's a lot. We've got a number of very big special kind of events on the web. Uh, so go to the dsrnetwork.com. You'll find information about all of that. Our next scheduled podcast is this one next week because next Monday is uh, Labor Day. But we've got a couple coming, I think, on Tuesday and Wednesday. Um, uh, and again, go to the dsrnetwork.com, follow that. And if you wish, go click on where it says you want to be a member and help support what we're doing and, you know, be a member and help support what we're doing. Anyway. Thanks to everybody. Stay healthy. Um, uh, Stay safe out there. Bye-bye.